listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Man, so good to sing with y'all and proclaim that truth. Have you have your Bible turned to James? This is our last Sunday for a few weeks in the book of James. Uh, we'll put back up in January, but going to be doing some Christmas sermons here coming up. But James chapter 4, James chapter 4, we're going to cover some good ground today, verses 1 through 12, so, so quite a bit to, to walk through. But man, it is, it is good stuff, but it's also, I'll be honest, it's, it's kind of in your face. You know, sometimes you need something to kind of slap you upside the face, so to speak, and wake you up, get your attention, something to be staggering, to, to help you realize where you are and, and who you are. It's interesting I believe it's on the, it's either the southern or the western side of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Um, they still have steps that date back to the time of Christ. These were steps that went up to the Temple Mount. So as the worshipers in the Old Testament and even in the time of Christ were, were bringing their sacrifices, bringing their offerings to the temple to come to worship, they went up these steps that are still there today. And it's interesting, the steps are staggered. So like if you go to these steps on the, on the far sides of the platform up here, they're, they're perfectly spaced. They're the same space for each step. But these steps at the Temple Mount, they're staggered. So two might be a certain length, and then the, the next one is a bigger step. And a lot of scholars believe the reason, by the way, it's the same um, in the worship center. So when you go to South Crest Christmas tonight, don't trip on the steps, okay? They're not all the same. But a lot of scholars believe the reason it was made that way at the Temple Mount was so that you couldn't just run up the stairs real quick without thinking about who you are and, and where you were going, what you were doing. So they were staggered to, to create some, some reflection and some awareness of what was going on. So maybe you had been busy uh, with your day of, at the, at the um, as my friend calls it, at the Jew Mart, right, selling things and doing things, and you're going to the temple now to, to bring a sacrifice. They wanted you to slow down and think about the, the significance of that moment, but also take some, some self-reflection of self-assessment of, of where you were, where you're preparing your heart to walk with God. It was staggering to get your attention. I believe that James, really all through the book of James, he's pretty intense, but particularly in chapter four, he's even, he's even more intense. I think it's for the sake of being staggering to get our attention, to wake us up a little bit uh, to where, in regards to where we're at, to who we are and, and where we're at in our relationship with Christ and the ways that we're living. It's, it's a little bit staggering. It reminds me of, of James chapter one, where he says that God's word is like a mirror. It, it, it's meant to show you who you are, not just for the sake of, oh, there I am, but so that you can change accordingly. So James is not being intense. He's not being staggering for the sake of being a jerk. No, he's trying to get our attention so we can walk more closely with Jesus, so we can live a life that brings joy to the heart of God. What will we see this morning as all of us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look into the mirror of God's word? James 4, verse 1. What is the source of, of wars and fights among you. Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives 
so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. We see from, even just from verses one through three, that we are a mess of desires. That our desires, our longings, our wants are, are, are a mess. They're, they're sinful. And he points it out by saying that the source of our strife, the source of our arguments and disagreements, not getting along with other people, the source, it stems from us, our own wrong fleshly desires. When he says the source of wars and fights, so wars being something that's more long out and, draw, and drawn, excuse, long and drawn out, fight, maybe it's a more one intense situation. All of us, pastors included, all of us get in disagreements with people, don't we? We have fights, we have arguments, we, we have strife with one another. Even in the church, again, remember, James is writing to believers. When he's saying the source of wars and fights among you, he doesn't mean between the church and non-Christians. No, he's talking about within the church, the strife, the frustration, the bitterness towards each other, the fights. He says the source, it comes from your passions that wage war within you. You. So it's not, it's, ooh, they're the problem. If they could just get their act together. No, the problem is where? Where? Yeah, with the, within us. Yeah, he's saying we are the problem. We can't always put the blame on other people. No, like we have our own selfish, fleshly desires. It reminds me of, of chapter one, uh, verses 14 to 15, where he says, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So, so the problem is, rather than controlling our desires, our wants, our longings, we like to cultivate them, don't we? Like Rather than say, I'm going to fight that, I'm going to push against it. No, we tend to just feed, I want what I want. He says that, you desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Jesus said that, that murder is not just like the physical act. It starts with hate in the heart, right? Again, it's within us. That's where it begins. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war, always going at each other. But you do not have because you do not ask. So Jesus, uh, James is now bringing prayer into it. So he's saying, the problem of your arguments, of all your fighting, of, of not getting along with other folks and deciding, I'm going to like that person. I'm not going to like that person. I'm at odds with that person. The problem, first of all, is we all have our own sinful, fleshly desires. We're a mess. But then on top of that, rather than going to God with our desires and saying, God, would you help me with these wrong, with these wrong desires? Would you put in me the right desires? And God, would you, if, if you want these things for my life, would you give them to me? Rather than praying, we just decide to get mad at other people to covet what they want, to, to, to be jealous of, of what they have. And he's saying, pray about it. Take your needs, and yes, even your desires, take them to the Lord. And then someone raises their hand and says, yeah, but, but James, I've been praying. Jesus was here like 20 years ago. I'm talking from James' perspective, okay? Jesus was here like 20 years ago. I've been praying, and I ain't got nothing. Well, James, to so that person says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Well, darn. <laughs> he said, even when you do pray so often, you're praying a selfish prayer rather than praying for other people, rather than praying for their needs, for their struggles, that who knows what they're going through. By the way, this sermon is, this text is so convicting for me, just so if y'all leave, I'm just gonna keep preaching, okay? <laughs> but 
rather than praying for others and who knows what's on their heart, we tend to just pray for what we want and what we think we need. And, and how can I help me feel better and get what I want? It, rather than praying for the kingdom of God and for others in the kingdom of God, for people to be brought into the kingdom of God, we tend to make it all about our selfish wants and desires. And I can't blame someone else. The problem is me. We're a mess. You know, when, you, when you follow the, the source, when you, when you find the source of something, you, you find out like the root issue. And Bryan, Texas, uh, at Bryan Municipal Lake, for a while that, that lake was closed down, uh, because they, they couldn't figure out what was going on it, around the lake. So people that were coming into the lake, and even fishing there, what was happening, they were finding that babies were having these rare deformities. They were finding fish with no eyes or no fins. They, they found turtles with scales that had grown over their noses. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Well, they finally tested the water, found that, so I guess there's like a, um, legal levels of arsenic in, in different bodies of water. And that the arsenic in the Bryan Municipal Lake, this is years ago, by the way, so you can go there, go there now and don't be scared. But the levels in that lake of arsenic were 12 times the EPA limit. 12 times. It's like, oh, this is why people are sick. This is why people are dying. This is why fish and turtles look all messed up. They could find where is the arsenic coming from? Well, they found that Bryan Municipal Lake was fed by Fin Feather Lake. And that Fin Feather Lake had water coming to it from these retention ponds that were around an industry called cotton poisons. Now, cotton poisons, it was a, a, a solid industry. It wasn't like they weren't doing something illegal, but they didn't realize that they were having arsenic from these chemicals they were making to treat plants. Arsenic was coming out of the plant into these little retention ponds, kind of like Playa Lakes, and then eventually going to Bryan Municipal Lake and causing all these problems. When you trace something to the source, you find the root issue. James is saying, you could try to point the finger all you want. When you trace, when you look at your striving and your fights and your arguments and your conflict, if you, if, if you want to find the problem, it always traces back to within us that we are a mess of selfish desires, that we want what we want, how we want it, when we want it, don't we? Seems somewhat relevant at Christmas time. I don't know. <laughs> the problem is us. We're, we're a mess. And then we, and we say we pray, but we're not even praying unselfishly. And to think that we have the audacity, as much of a mess as we are, sinful mess and our wrong desires, evil desires, to think, to think that on top of that, then we still are prone to think that we're better than other people. Look at verse 11. He says, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And James, he holds up the mirror again. He says, you are a mess. We are a mess of self-righteousness. We're a mess of self-righteousness, thinking that we have it together and that nobody else does. Thinking that we, that we live lives that God's impressed with, that everybody else are a bunch of losers. No, that, that's self-righteousness. To think that I've got it all together, that I've got it figured out, that my life impresses God and that, that he's not pleased with anyone else. 
a mess of self-righteousness. That's why James says, don't criticize one another. Don't defame another person. So you're, you're speaking ill of them. You're trying to make them look bad. By the way, we know from the whole context of Scripture, James is not saying that we cannot talk about and judge between what is right and wrong. He's not saying that we can't ever look at something with a, with a critical eye. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's addressing the purpose and the position, the posture with which we approach these situations. So you could, you could talk about something in a situation critically, so like I'm using air quotes, critically, but your heart be that you want to heal the situation. You want to help the person. And you're coming from a posture, a position of alongside them. Hey, that's my brother and sister in Christ, and I care about them. That would be a good godly thing. What James is addressing here is what we're more prone to, and it's this purpose of, of talking about people, criticizing others, not for the purpose of healing, but for the purpose of hurting. Not for the purpose of restoring, but for the purpose of revenge. And from the position, not of brotherly love and put an arm around them, but rather from the position of up above and saying, I don't care about this person. I, I think I'm better than them. If they could get their act together, then maybe life would go good for them. It's this self-righteous position. Aren't we prone to that? It says, don't criticize. And, and here's the problem. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So, so, so two things. One, he points out, when you are criticizing, and you're, when you're critical of other people, when you're judging other people for a, a purpose of hurting them and a position of self-righteousness, you're actually judging the law, aka the word of God. How is that? Because when you're doing that, when, you, when I'm like, man, that person's the worst. I wish they could get their act together. I'm now, I'm disobeying God's word. I'm being uh, critical from a self-righteous position. So that means what I've done is I've chosen to say, you know what? God's word matters, but I, I get to pick and choose what I'm going to obey. I get to pick and choose the parts that are important, the parts that matter. At that point, I've become a judge of God's word. That's a scary place to be. That I think I'm over God's word. And I have authority because I get to pick and choose what's good, what I'm going to listen to, what I'm not. And he says, in addition to that, so not only are you judging God's law, you're, you're acting as if you want to be God. You're trying to take the place of God. Why? Because there's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So when I take that self-righteous critical position as, as if I'm perfect and they're not, and I'm going to speak ill of them and condemn them. At that point, it's like I'm saying, hey, God, you know what? You can step off the throne for a minute. You can step off the throne for a minute. Let me take this one. I got this. Whew. We are a mess of self-righteousness. That, that is a terribly dangerous place to be. You know, James' older brother, Jesus, said something about this. Similar idea. He said, don't go to somebody and try to get out the little bitty speck in their eye when you have a plank in your eye, right? Like, how ridiculous for me to say, you know, I'm going to come down here to Jarrett, and he's got a little speck in his eye, and I'm smacking him in the head with my two-by-four sticking out of my face, right? Like, Jesus being kind of silly. That's, that's a ridiculous image, right? But that's what he pointed that out because that's what we're prone to do. We're prone to this hypercritical, self-righteous spirit of like, you know what? I got my stuff together. You don't need to figure it out. I, certainly, I'm not at fault. Certainly, no, that wouldn't be me. 
we are a mess of self-righteousness. Thinking that, that we've impressed God, thinking that we can earn God's favor, thinking that we're better than others. It's a mess. When you, when you couple wrong, evil, messed up desires with self-righteousness, that will always lead you to pursue things that are not of God. It will always lead you to, to, to try to find satisfaction in lesser things than God. J, James uses his strongest words in verse four. He says, you adulterous people. By the way, these are the same people that he's been calling brothers and sisters. So this is not like, yeah, those people out there. No, this is the people in the church. This is us, brothers and sisters, who at the same time, we act as adulterers towards God. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whatever, excuse me, so whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? James holds up the mirror again and says, we are a mess of misplaced affections. Our hearts are prone to love all the wrong things. As the old hymn says, prone to leave the God we love. When he says adulteresses, or calls us adulterous people, he's using a phrase that was very common in the Old Testament of recognizing, I'm thinking particularly of the book of Hosea, that we are to be in a relationship, in a covenant with God that we are set apart for him. But so often God's people run to, as an old song says, to the call of lovers so less wild that we decide, you know, I'm gonna pursue these other things rather than the Lord. And it's as if we are treating God like he's just kind of on the side. Like, you know what? Yeah, God, I'm in a relationship with you, but I'm also in an, it's an open relationship. I'm gonna like the things of the world too. God's not interested in an open relationship. Like, could you imagine standing at your wedding day and you're giving your vows, and then as you're giving your vows, and it's your, your spouse's turn, or soon-to-be spouse's turn, and they're like, yeah, for better or for worse, but I'm gonna keep my options open. Like, I kind of like this other person over here. Like, it's not funny, right? Like, there's nothing about that is funny. God doesn't think it's funny either. He wants, <clears throat> he wants your whole heart. Undivided heart affections for him. And when he says friendship with the world, the problem is not that we're friends with people other than him. Like, isn't it, like we're supposed to have friends. We're supposed to share the gospel and be relational. The problem is that we make friends that we love, the ideologies and the values, the principles of the world. Y'all tracking with that? So it's not like, don't be friends with lost people. No, he's saying you love the principles, the ideas of the world. And when you do that, you're an enemy of God. It's like you've chosen to be in a relationship with the world and, and the evil of the world rather than God. Like, I, I think just to name one, like this idea of progressive Christianity that is sweeping across our nation. You know, progressive Christianity is not Christianity. Any Christianity that says, well, you know, maybe the Bible is God's word. Some of it, I think a lot of it was altered. We're not sure Jesus really was God, but he was a good man. That's not Christianity. At that point, that's just religion. 
He's saying, guard your affections. And the problem is so many of us, we, we've lost our affection for Jesus. As the book of Revelation says, we've lost our first love and we chase after the things of this world. When we do that, we're, we're not, it's not that we're just like, we're stepping away from God. He says, when you do that, it's like you're an enemy of God. He says, do you think it's without, in verse five, do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? This is one of the most talked about verses as far as scholars considering how to translate it from the Greek to the English. And um, I looked at several different translations and I feel like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. But, but the idea is nonetheless clear. The idea is divine jealousy. So if you look at the Old Testament, again, James is playing a lot or um, using a lot of the ideas from the Old Testament. This idea that God is jealous for his people as a husband is jealous for his wife. I don't love the way the CSB translate. There's a, they give a footnote with a different translation that I think is better, which says, he jealously yearns for the spirit he made to live in us. So we connect with God through our spirit. We're in relationship with him, our spirit and his spirit. And he gave us that spirit. If you go back to Genesis 2, it says that God breathed life, breathed spirit into Adam's nostrils, right? So God is jealous to be in relationship with us is the idea, divine jealousy. He longs to be in relationship with you. And James is saying, you should weep over the fact that you over and over again turn to and love things more, pursue things more, chew on desire, think about things more than God. I'll never forget, years ago at a church I was serving, a man came and the I, we were close friends, and uh, he came, wanted to meet in my office, and he had cheated on his wife. And I'll never forget the brokenness. So he sat there on that couch, just weeping. The brokenness he expressed of, man, like the people I love most, my wife and my kids, the, the ones that bring me the most joy, the most satisfaction. Why in the world? Would I turn and hurt them for the sake of just a little momentary pleasure that now is like pangs me? That's the idea that James is getting at here. That we're a mess. How could we, the one who loves us so much, the one who we love the most as believers, we've been transformed by his love how could we turn our backs on him, on the one who gave his back for us? We are a mess. How, how can there be hope for people who are so messed up, who have wrong, sinful, evil desires, who are self-righteous, who hip, walk around hitting people with a two by four when they have a speck in their eye and, and think we've got it all together? How, like we, how can there be hope for us when we're such a mess that we, we continually turn our backs on the Lord, that we chase after lovers so less wild? How can there be hope for us? Y'all, there can be hope for us because literally right here in the middle of the text, so verses one through 12, in verse six, right in the middle is the grace of God. Verse six says, but he gives greater grace. Friend, listen, there can be hope for us because yes, we're a mess, but listen, God's grace meets you in the middle of your mess. 
It's not just reserved for your best day when you've got it all together. No, his grace meets you right smack dab in the middle of your mess. Grace to forgive and grace to overcome. That Jesus paid the price for your sins when he died on that old rugged cross, that he was beaten brutally, that he was killed, hung to that cross for your sins and my sins so he could forgive them. But three days later, he rose again. So it's not just grace to forgive, it's grace to overcome because then he sent his spirit to come and live inside of us. His forgiving, excuse me, overcoming, empowering grace meets you right wherever your struggle is. Amen. He meets you right where you're at. That's why he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How can we not be humble and realize right in the middle of my mess, that's where God meets me and wants to shower me with his grace and mercy. Why would I be prideful? You know what, God, like, actually, I see your grace, but let me kind of climb out of this mess on my own a little bit. Let me figure this out on my own, and then I'll come to you. No, don't be a foolish, proud, a prideful fool. No, humble yourself. There's grace. I think that I think the application of all that we've said that James is is getting at is in verses seven through 10. So yes, we are a mess, but God's grace meets you in the middle of your mess. So as a believer, what is your response is this verse seven, therefore submit to God. God, your ways are better than mine. I'm gonna gonna humble myself because you're in charge. Why have I been trying to do this on my own? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a cool concept. Resist the devil and he will flee. So first of all, resist the devil. That has a military nuance. The idea is you're not gonna give him any ground. There's no middle ground. So it's not like, you know what, devil, like Satan, it's not a big deal. You can have a little bit of space in my life. No, and nobody got time for that. No, no space in my life, Satan. I'm not gonna let you have even an inch or a little bit. Like you can't even have a foothold, not less a toehold, nothing. There's no room for you. It's, it's taking a stance against him. When you resist him, it says what? He will flee from you. So it's not that Satan's like, oh, okay, like I'll give you some space. No, he runs away because he sees you've submitted yourself to the authority of God. You've gotten serious about walking with God. And Satan says, I'm, I'm not even gonna waste my time on him or her. He will flee, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is prodigal prodigal son language, that when you run towards the Father, you realize the mess that you are, the mess that you've been in, and you run towards the Father, that he's there ready to receive you. He's not like, all right, Brandon, give me a couple days, and I'll get back to you. No, he's right there, ready and willing to meet you in the middle of your mess. He says, cleanse your hearts, sinners, and purify your, excuse me, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is a call for inward and outward repentance. So, so those sins that are more evident, that are more visible on the outside, and those sins that are more of the heart and of the mind, repent of those, turn from those, come back to God because there's grace in the middle of your mess. Quit being double-minded of like, maybe I'm gonna follow God, maybe he's good. No, make up your mind. I'm gonna trust God, I'm gonna pursue him. Verses nine through 10, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We know James is not saying that being a serious, being a a godly, being a 
growing Christian, mature Christian, we know he's not saying means you have to be sad all the time. I'm mad. That's not what he's talking about. We know that Jesus' friends described him as being anointed with the oil of gladness, that Jesus knew what joy and laughter was. That's part of the Christian life. No, keep it in context. James is saying, when you look at the mess that you are and the fact that, that even in your mess, God's grace wants to meet you right there. Not that you're getting saved again. No, that's, no, no but that you're repenting and saying, right now in the middle of my mess, as a believer, God, I, I want to I accept that grace and forgiveness. I want to walk with you and be who you want me to be. So when you see your mess, you see what, that Christ made a mess of himself for your sin, that should lead you to mourn and to weep. Like, God, how, forgive me. Like, there should be times in the Christian life where you are, something is staggering, gets your attention and slows you down and you realize, oh man, I, I'm a mess. But God, your grace meets me right here. Thank you. Lord, Lord I'm sorry. You, you should grieve over your sin. Grieve over the fact that you, you chased after things more, loved things more than God. That, that's part of repentance. That's, that's part of submitting to God is grieving over our sin. God's grace meets you right where you're at. Amen? Right where you're at. You know, what, what I love about all of this is that James, while he's calling us to change, he's calling us to repentance, he's calling us to, 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 to walk with the Lord, to, to realize we're a mess and to, to pursue Jesus, but he's motivating us not with shame, but with grace. See, shame is a, it's a tempting motivator. Like, it's very common in our culture, but it's a terrible motivator. Like, I could shame you all. You guys are terrible Christians. Try again harder next week. Like, one, you probably would never come back if I talked to you like that. But two, if, even if you did leave, like, okay, I'm a terrible Christian. I got to be better. I'll, I will bet everything. You'll walk out, and you'll live the same life. Shame doesn't lead to lasting change. And that's why... While James is calling us to transformation, he uses grace. He puts grace at the crux. Grace is at the center of it because grace leads to true transformation. The, the power for overcoming, overwhelming your desires and your misplaced affections and your self-righteousness is to see Jesus and his grace as more beautiful, to be captivated, to be in awe of who he is. That leads to transformation, the grace of Jesus Christ. Ben Stewart, the pastor in, in D.C., wrote a book called Rest and War, and, and he addresses this idea a little bit of, of fighting the mess that we are in, not by looking to shame, but by looking to the grace of God, by, by fixing our eyes on something more beautiful. I want to read from his book, Rest and War. He says, Shakespeare put this very idea on display. How did Romeo get rid of Rosalind? Or do you even remember Rosalind? At the outset of Shakespeare's most famous play, Romeo pines away incessantly for his beloved Rosalind. Finally, in frustration, ben Benvolio tells him he's going to take Romeo to a party where there would be a hundred girls hotter than Rosalind. That's a rough translation, but go look at it. It's there. <laughs> and what was Romeo's response? The all-seeing sun near saw her match since first 
the world begun. Apparently, Rosalind was pretty good looking. Because <laughs> Ro- Romeo can't imagine something better. He's like, Benvolio, I know you're inviting me, but, but there's no way something could be better than, than Rosalind. He went to the party anyway. He saw Juliet, and before he knew it, he was sneaking into her yard and looking at her on her balcony. By the way, apparently Romeo was a little bit of a creeper, all right? But at at her balcony, he exclaims, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. It's almost like Romeo, after seeing Juliet, he's like, Rosalind who? (laughs) Who's Rosalind? Like the beauty of Juliet, being amazed at her. He already forgot who Rosalind was. Ben goes on to say, it is the same way with you, friend. Any unhealthy thing that is holding your attention today can be overwhelmed by something better. Your addictions lose their allure in the light of God's affections. He is the fountain of living water and the water that wells up to eternal life. In his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we are meant to follow the command from Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. The beauty that leads to transformation is the beauty of the gospel that Jesus meets us again and again right in the middle of our mess. And Romans 2, 4 says, his kindness leads us to repentance. So if I could sum up all that James said and what I think his intentions are, in a few words, it would be this. First, realize that you're a mess. Even as a believer, that we are prone to be a mess. But then revel in the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ, that his grace meets you in the middle of your mess. And when you recognize that, that leads you to repentance. Lord, uh, forgive me. I, I want to walk with you. I want to be who you want me to be. I need you. This grace meets you right where you're at. If you're, if you're a Christian, I'm going to ask you even right now to go ahead and just begin to pray and talk with the Lord, whatever he may be stirring and putting on your heart of repentance and, and returning to walk with him. Would you just go ahead and pray right now? But if you don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you never trusted him for salvation. His grace does meet you in the middle of your mess and he offers you forgiveness and life and hope and joy in him if you will simply turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. It's that same idea of drawing near to him. He's already drawn near to you through the cross of Jesus. You just need to turn to him and say, Jesus, would you be the Lord of my life? You can make that prayer right now today. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 